when we get our focus back where it belongs, there is such a strong sense of the Lord's presence, the Lord's purposes. And one of the things that I hope we as the church will remember is that, especially in this season, that there has not been like, there hasn't been a nanosecond in heaven where Jesus is up there you know, tweaking, wringing his hands, worried about what's going on. When, when we get into the throne room and if we can use our spiritual eyes to behold the Son of God sitting on the throne, I, I'm going to tell you what you're going to see in his face, two things primarily in this season. You're going to see incredible love beaming out from his countenance, but you're also going to see sovereign resolve that he sits on the throne, not so we can write songs about it. I love the songs, but he sits on the throne because he governs the cosmos from the throne. And so if you woke up today wondering who's in charge, it's the same one who's been in charge since before time began. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loves you, who called your name, who brought the gospel to you, who saved your soul after he paid for your sins, who's working all things together for your good and my good because we've been made those that love him and are walking according to his purposes. And so one of the things that I think we're going to have to do by faith, maybe every day, maybe multiple times a day in this season, is shake the nastiness out of your head. Like just speak and preach the gospel to yourself and praise the Lord out loud so your own ears hear your own mouth reminding your own soul that the Son of God is working all things together for good. Uh, I believe it, I, we, we had a pre-service meeting. I can't remember who said it. I think it was Billy. It may have been Billy or Hazen. But we, we love the concept of being, bringing beauty from ashes. We're familiar with that biblical concept that the prophet said, prophesied that God is and does and will bring beauty from ashes. But we always rush straight to the beauty and we forget in order for that prophecy to come true, what does there have to be first? Ashes. Ooh, little effect there. There has to be ashes. And so, friends, let's not feign shock when it gets a little ash-filled in our lives. Let's recognize that it's all a setup. It's all a setup that the glorious return of the Son of God is going to shine against the backdrop of some rather intense and dark, desperate times. And so when we see these things come into pass, if we'll just stay fixated and lock eyes with the Son of God, with Jesus Christ, and remember what he has said, and remember what he has done, and remember above all things who he is in this season, and I'm telling you something, sorrow and sighing will flee. That, that negative desperation, there's a holy desperation that I'm an advocate for. I want holy desperation in hope towards the Lord. But there's another kind of desperation that doesn't have anything to do with the Lord. And that's a desperate, frantic seeking for something to lean upon so you'll regain your sense of, of peace and comfort or nirvana or whatever it is you want to call it. You just, you just have to sometimes just lean on nothing. And take those same hands that grope in the dark for something to clutch and hold to. Take them and just bring them empty before the Lord and just lift them up and surrender and worship. Some of you, you need that this morning. Some of you, you, you literally, we need a, oh Lord, here it comes. I, I can already feel it. We need a colonic of the Spirit that purges out the waste that's in our soul. That all week long, the world and the enemy and our, even our own flesh cooperating pipes in all of this worthless stuff. 
And, and, and we, you know, we, we dabble in the kingdom, but we gorge on the world and its narrative. And then we, we show up on, on, on a worship gathering or a prayer meeting or at work or in the home, and we wonder why we've got this sense of ickiness on our spirit. And it's because, guys, I mean, it, what's true in the physical is true in the spiritual. We are what we eat. We become what we ingest. And so I'm going to advocate for all of us to start ingesting copious amounts of the kingdom through the word, through worship, through fellowship, through prayer, through serving one another, through loving. doesn't mean we bury our head in the sands. I'm not saying go around and see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil, that kind of thing. But what I am saying is it's not spiritual to try to get the latest, freshest dose of bad news and then figure out how you want to respond to it. What's spiritual is maybe glance at the headline, but gaze at Jesus and let that orient our soul, our collective soul, back to where we need to be. Well, I want to be in um, Luke 13 this morning. For those of you that are our guests today for the first time, and maybe some of you are tuning in online for the very first time, uh, we're just grateful to be able to do a Sunday morning with you. We hope that it turns into something more than that. Um, some are in town today from other parts of the country. Some are watching in other parts of the world. And I, I just want to say, the, to me, these, yeah, they're chaotic times that we're living in. But, but what did we sign up for? Isn't this what we signed up for? You know what it is? We, we all have such a, just a, a, I mean, it's a holy hunger for heaven. We want we want the fulfillment. We want to step into the glory and the consummation of the ages. And so there's nothing wrong with that desire, but it is through much tribulation that you enter into that. And so I just think that this is a great season for the children of God to manifest a diligence, even at times a militant commitment not to waver to the left hand or to the right hand, but to display to each other and to an unbelieving world that in this age, in this temporary realm, in our earthly citizenship, there, there's no lasting hope in the things of earth. And so if, if you're tempted to gloat because of political change coming to America. Don't do that because that's not your hope. If you're tempted to despair about political changes in America, don't do that because that was never supposed to be your hope. All of this stuff is destined to ashes. But the things that last forever are always anchored and centered in Jesus. You know, I, I grew up in church. Raise your hand if you grew up in church. I'm just curious. Raise, keep it up for a second. So about maybe 60% of the room grew up in some form of church. And I wasn't a believer until I abandoned church, shook a 10-year fist in the face of God, didn't want to have anything to do with God, didn't want to have anything to do with those smarmy Christians that I grew up around. I, I did not want to have anything to do with it, and I operated in a spirit of disillusionment and defiance and deep, deep resentment towards God and all things Christian. And so that flavored my life. And I, I remember looking back and, and, and recognizing a few things from my early church days. I was surrounded by people that genuinely loved me and cared for me 
genuinely loved Jesus, genuinely loved the gospel and advanced the gospel and wanted to see people born again and wanted to see people um, step into all that God has for them. But when I think back to my, my relationship with what I would have termed in my rebellious years as organized religion, dun, 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 that kind of that ominous, we've all heard that, organized religion. I, I don't believe in organized religion. And I always want to say, well, do you believe in chaotic, disorganized religion? Well, tell me what you believe in. But we know what people mean by that. I, I, I grew up and I remember the system. And the, the religious system, though it was inhabited by sincere, godly, Jesus-loving people, but it was a perpetuated system that was handed to them, and it was handed to them by people who had had it handed to them, by people who had had it, had it handed to them. And it was the unquestioned, perpetuated religious system, and there I was as a, a boy in Bible Belt Christianity, being led by adults in Bible Belt Christianity in a system that where that, that, belkle, that belt buckle was titanium and the belt was unyielding leather. I mean, it was strong. And I remember just as a boy saying, I don't get this stuff. I don't really understand it. I really want to know Jesus, but I'm having a hard time staying connected to him because of all the stuff. So I did what a lot of people do, which I believe was sinful. I decided, since I'm struggling with the stuff, I'll abandon all of it. And I made up my mind that I would be a maverick, and me and God would develop our own understanding. And so I did what a lot of people do when they get a little disillusioned with uh, Christianity. I, I decided I would just develop my own understanding of God and my own interaction with God. And let me just tell you, that, that little uh, science test was an abysmal failure. Because you're, you and I are not ordained to relate individually with God only. It begins there. But God has um, initiated the process of redemption so that we will be a family that we will be a collective group of redeemed people who have different skin color. We have different, in this life, we have different priorities and pursuits to a certain extent. We, we carry a, a slightly different fragrances about who we are and how we live, but he, he, he gives us one thing that we don't differ in, and that is a centralized identity in Jesus Christ. And so he brings us together as flawed as we are. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want to go ahead and make a, a corporate confession. We know we are flawed. I'll strengthen it. We fail. I'll strengthen it again. We sin. I'll strengthen it and come into agreement to a certain degree with the, the narrative of the culture. At times, we Christians can be hypocritical. We can, we can bark at the culture about something that we're failing to, to process in our own lives. We, we can do all of that. And so I want to confess that, and I want to say this. Don't let that be a distraction from Jesus Christ in whom there is no conflict of identity. He is who he says he is. He will do what he says he is going to do. He's doing it right now. 
He's actually working in every single individual life in this place, whether you've yet believed on him or not, wherever you are along the spectrum of your relationship with God. He is intentionally working with you individually to bring you into a collective redemption that he offers anybody. And when we get to glory and we, we're no longer having to even deal with the systems down here and the struggles down here and the flaws and the inconsistencies and the heartbreaks and all of those things that now and drag on our soul when we enter into it we will look at each other in our glorified state and there will be an unbridled love for him and an unbridled love for one another that person you're mad at today in the body of Christ y'all are going to be so happy to see each other in glory you might as well make up now you might as well just go ahead and get it settled now because you're going to see each other I, I just I have a little bit of a warped sense of humor but sometimes I think like if I'm mad at somebody down here in the body of Christ and let's just say we go out I just picture the Lord letting that person and me enter at the same time and having to look at each other first person I see the first one I see and be like sorry you know <laughs> take care of all that mess now deal with all of that now so Jeff what are you talking about I I, I believe we're at the back end of the age I'm not a date setter, I'm not a, an hour setter, but I want to be discerning. And even if I'm wrong, I know that physically I'm running out of time. I know I have a date with dust, and I know you do too. And so every single day we're alive, we're moving closer and closer to that unspeakable, immeasurably glorious moment where we step into the presence of the Lord. And I want to finish well. And I don't want to come up short, and I don't want to live by excuses, and I, I want to be free of resentment, and I, I want to be free of all of the snares of the enemy who, who spends his time orchestrating, calculating, and strategizing on how he can steal, kill, and destroy. And that's not a generic out there somewhere. That's for your life. That's what the enemy is doing today. They have nothing else to do except to come up and resist, to seek, to kill, steal, and destroy that which brings God glory. And I don't want to cooperate with him on the, on the most minute level. And so I think about the spirit of religion, and I think about how it's such a flippant term that I've used in a spirit of religion, spirit of religion. And oftentimes we use that, that phrase, spirit of religion, and if you're not aware, you're in a charismatic church. And charismatics, we have a lot of phrases that we like to use. And spirit religion is one of our favorites because you know how we use it sometimes? Anything we don't like. I don't, don't want to deal with her. She's got a spirit of religion on her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you see what, see what he said today or she did today? Or uh, You know what's going on down that church? They ought not do it that way. That's just kind of the spirit of religion. And the spirit of religion has come to mean anything from, you know, somebody extravagantly, publicly putting on a display of worshiping God with no harness and no bridle and just lavish. People are like, well, she's drawing attention to herself. That's just a spirit of religion. It can mean that extreme, or it can mean a discipline, a, uh, a resolute commitment, a resolve. Or it could mean just somebody who's just listening intently to what the Lord might be saying, showing no emotion. And we can say that's a spirit of religion too. But the reality is, in the passage I want to share with you today, there was an actual spirit 
an actual demon that had plagued a woman physically. But I believe that there was an actual different demon plaguing a leader in the synagogue, not physically, but spiritually. The Bible only definitively declares that there was one spirit in there. And as a matter of fact, it's not just the Bible declaring it in Luke 13. It's Jesus declaring it. But I want you to watch what Jesus does because he delivers one one woman from a, a controlling spirit, but he denounces another man for cooperating with a controlling spirit. And so in Luke 13, look with me in verse number 10. Speaking of Jesus, it says this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, now just listen to this, just Let it read like it is meant to read. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, Be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So I want to talk to you today about when deliverance displaces religion. I I literally have 10 months of sermons swirling in my soul because I was on sabbatical. And my temptation is try to work in a little chunk of all of those sermons into this message, and I'm just going to refrain. But I am going to say this. I believe everybody in the room at some point in their life needs deliverance. Now, careful, because what we sometimes think is, yep, all those non-Christians need to be delivered. Uh Uh-uh. I believe everybody in the room, on some level, needs deliverance. What do I mean by that? I just believe that we overestimate how right our life is at all times with the Lord. I believe we underestimate the warfare that comes against us in mind and body and soul. And I believe that we are very comfortable remaining very casual, and we have certain things that we can do in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God, that reassure us that we're okay, and especially when we've got nine other people that we can think of that are floundering, and by comparison to them, we're feeling really great. 
I know that the Lord is perpetually sanctifying and growing and maturing us, and that process involves him pulling stuff off of us, sometimes pulling stuff out of us, and then putting in what he desires into our lives, and he is rarely in a hurry. And so when he saves you, he begins that work. Sometimes we're not even conscious of the work of the Lord delivering us. And he doesn't quit until the final delivery is made when we step into glory and we receive the the fullness of our inheritance. And so today, I don't want you to think this is a message for everybody else because there's components of it that are for you and for me. Why? Because we need to be delivered. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you the number one thing. You might want to write this down. The number one thing personal confession that I need to be delivered from. You ready? Me. I need to be delivered from me. And in this passage of scripture, I can identify with the woman who is bent and with the leader of the synagogue who is bent. One is bent in her spine, the other is bent in his soul. And the same Son of God is in the room to help each of them. One he helps by healing, the other he helps by confrontation. And so wherever you are today on the spectrum, identifying with the the lady or the legalist, just remember, focus on the Lord because he has something for you today. So let's, let's begin there. Let's begin with her. Look at this desperate woman. See the desperate woman. One of the things I like about doing gospel passages is because we can kind of use our sanctified imagination because this actually happened. This was an actual Sabbath day. It was an actual synagogue. There were actual people historically that were in the room, and in the midst of them is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus has been going around and teaching in the synagogues. To Jesus, teaching was very important. If you will read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus did not minimize teaching, that he taught the people, and he went to the place of teaching, which was typically the synagogues on the Sabbath day. And he, as would have been recognized by most, as at least a rabbi who can teach, many were beginning to say this is the Messiah, but he has already so stirred up the religious spirit. He has provoked the religious spirit in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. He is not agreeing with their system. He is not bowing to their standards. He's not enforcing their traditions. He is coming in as Lord of all, bringing the kingdom of God, saying what he hears the Father saying, doing what he sees the Father doing, and it's not fitting in this pharisaical box of the Orthodox Judaism of his day. And so there are a whole host of leaders, religious leaders, that are very upset with him. But they let him come and teach, and on this particular day, he's in the synagogue, And it says he was teaching in one of the synagogues, but note this, on the Sabbath. So if I can kind of bring it into something we might better identify with, because we weren't around in the first century, we weren't in the Middle East, and we weren't in a synagogue, but it would be somewhat akin to the equivalent of a formal time of meeting for a local church service. Everybody walks in the same way they walked in the, the Sabbath before, and they sit down, 
They know who's going to do what. They don't know exactly all of the details, but they have a general idea about the flow of how things are going to go. And so it is very normal. It's very much a part of their culture, but it's also a part of their expression. There would have been people in that room that were coming out of habit. There would have been other people in that room that were coming desperate to hear something from Yahweh. And so they show up, and on this day, it's the miracle-working traveling rabbi named Jesus who's actually there. So there's an elevation of expectation. Maybe they knew he, he was coming that day. We're not told. They just says he was teaching on one particular, in one particular synagogue on the Sabbath day. But then it says in verse 11 that there's a special guest there. It says, behold. When you see that word in your Bible, it, it's, it's an attention getter. It means take note of this. It, we would say it in our way, hey, check this out. Hey, check this out. There was a woman who had a disabling spirit. Now, remember who's writing this gospel. This is only found in Luke's gospel. Somebody shout what his job was. What was Luke's profession? He was a physician. So Luke, as a physician, has the mind and the spirit to be not... He's not saying, well, she had a curvature of the spine, which she did. It was inflicted by uh, an infusion of bones moving into a mass that kept her at a level that she could not straighten up. For. It's not a medical situation. Luke, the doctor, says she had a demon. Why did he say that? Well, because Jesus was about to say that, and Luke's just writing down after the fact what had been recounted to him. But I want you to think about this. There's a woman in the church. There's a woman in the synagogue. There's a woman on the Sabbath day. There's a woman there whose life is a wreck. It's not a good day for her. It's not been a good year. It's not been a good decade. It's been almost two decades we're going to find out. And her life is a wreck. And every day, though she doesn't get to check out, she still has to live her life. But every day, and I'm not being irreverent here, I'm trying to give you a visual of what her life looked. At the worst, she is, she is bent over like that and cannot get up. Let's just say it's not that bad. Let's just say she's like that. But wherever she goes, she's walking an angle. Maybe her head can't come up. We don't know the exact affliction and what it looked like, but we do know this, that she had a disabling spirit. It was a demonic entity sent from hell to torture, torment, afflict, and to ruin the life, the very existence of this daughter of Abraham. That's what she woke up to every single day. And by the way, every single day, as the end of verse 11 says, for 18 years. I get convicted when I read stuff like that. Um, when you're in a troubled situation, time slows down. And we, especially in 21st century Western culture, we're offended when things don't go our way for an hour, much less for a day, much less for a month or a year, but 18 years. She's a woman of faith. She had some semblance of at least a pursuit of a relationship with God. Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham, which indicates that she has a positional righteousness in the Lord. And so she is not simply Jewish, but she's a daughter of Abraham, the father of faith. And so this isn't a godless, faithless woman. This is a woman in a very religious setting in the synagogue, pressing in in some manner that we don't know, but she's there, she's seeking, and her life is a wreck. My guess is that she had probably been going to that synagogue for 18 years. It wasn't like our day where if, you know, you don't like something in your church, you got 20 more on the same road to pick from. You, you went to the synagogue in your city. So everybody knew her. She knew them. And for 18 years, so she's emotionally exhausted. 
18 years of affliction. She's demonically oppressed. She has a disabling spirit, but she's still spiritually seeking. Can I take a moment, just kind of put on pastor hat for a second? I want to commend those of you that are still pressing into the Lord, even though your life may be a wreck right now, even though your body may not be what it used to, even though that your, your, your situation may have taken a brutal hit. Maybe your home isn't what you thought it would be. Maybe your finances have imploded. Maybe your own uh, aspirations in the kingdom of how you thought things would go, maybe they bottomed out somewhere along the way, and yet here you are, even in weakness, even though it may be a partial struggle, but you're still pressing in. You're saying, I have enough faith to get up and do what I can do, even though I can't do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to seek the Lord again today. And I want to just commend that kind of courage because sometimes that's all faith is and sometimes that's all God requires. We, we live in Instagram and Snapchat Christianity where we take a shot of our Christianity and we put nine filters on it and everybody goes, ooh, she's a Christian. When you strip the filters off and nobody's hitting like, and nobody's wanting to follow you. And your Christianity sometimes is just, I've got nothing to offer you, but I'm still convinced that you have everything that can be offered to me that I need. I'm pressing in another day. And Lord, I say reverently that if my breakthrough doesn't come today, I'll be back. I'm coming because I'm convinced you alone are what I need and have what I need. Maybe something like that's going on in her heart and mind over these 18 years, but get this, spiritually seeking, demonically afflicted, emotionally exhausted, and just in the bottom line, she's physically wasted. The end of verse 11 just says this, she's bent over, and she couldn't fully straighten herself. I, I don't want to bore you with Greek, but let me give you just a, a synopsis of what this says. The Greek indicates she's bent, and she could not unbend. That's all it says. She's bent and she could not unbend. There literally is no solution for her. She's literally in about the most religious setting you can be in on the Sabbath day in her time. She walked in for the umpteenth time in a row and is probably thinking she's going to leave still bent. Because I don't know about you, but most of us have this little thing in us when nothing changes for whatever our elongated time is. We learn how to live with it. We learn how to manage it. We stop seeking and contending for breakthrough. And we, we, we come to this mindset that says, well, I still wish it would happen. But there's something that happens to the psyche that when your breakthrough doesn't come for so long, you, you can learn to start living with a, it's not a forfeiture of hope, but it is an assumption of, well, it probably isn't going to happen, therefore I'll go to plan B. And I wouldn't falter if she did that because I've done that before. Some of you have done that before, but the reality is on this day, her life was about to be changed. And the only thing she did was show up. That's the only thing she did. She didn't bust in saying, hallelujah, in the name of Jesus, I claim today that I'm walking in this place one way and I'm walking out the other, hallelujah, I am too blessed to be stressed, I am not going to go through this again, God's going to do something for me, can I get an amen, can I get a witness? She's not doing any of that. All she's doing is showing up, why? Because she's got nothing to offer. She's hit that place where God does some of his most astounding work. 
It's when we come to the recognition that we have nothing to offer, we cannot fix it, we cannot change it, but we are still pressing into him because somewhere along the line we realize he's good even if I don't get my breakthrough. That it is about him. It is about his glory. It is about his name. I want my breakthrough. I'm believing you for it. But even if it doesn't come today, I'm not going to let that rob me of the one thing I can do because I can't unbend. I can't walk out differently in my own power, but I can seek you with all that I have and all that I am, even though it may not be much. And so she does that. And some of you are doing that today. And I just want to say um, that doesn't, you're not invisible, okay? You're not invisible to the Lord. He's not listening to everybody but you. He's not preoccupied with those really special people that he loves to help while he'll get to you if he has some time. That's not the way the Father operates. He operates in perfect precision along a sovereign timetable, and he is working in you even at those times where you can't see him working for you. And we need both of those works. And so let's, let's just go there. I want you to witness the divine working. I love this about Jesus. This is so moving to me. Witness the divine working. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is about to do something. Gabriel didn't descend. Michael didn't shout it with an echo from the heavens. Watch what's about to happen. Happen, happen, happen. Didn't work that way. Jesus is literally teaching. The people are seated. The congregation is probably full because that's the way it worked when Jesus was there. Some scholars say that there was a separation in the local synagogue where the women would be in one area and the men would be in another area. Other scholars say, no, it was commingled. It doesn't really matter. Everybody's in there, and I'm telling you this. If Jesus is teaching, he has your attention. Then it just says this. Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her. I'm moved by this. I'm moved by this. Place is crowded. In the eyes of the compassionate shepherd, locked on to a hobbled lamb. And the depths of that statement that he saw her is more than he just she caught his eye. It's that he stopped and he looked at her. Without getting into a theological thin ice situation, I don't think it was just that he's omnipotent and he knew what was going on with her. I think he's moved. I think he feels it. I think he looks at her. And again, who knows if she could even sit. But when he sees her, she's irregular. She's not as she was born. And he's stopping, and he looks at her, and she's registering. And he is God, so he knows her story, but he knew her story before he walked in the room. But in the moment, with everything that was going on, including a teaching lesson, hear me on this, because this is actually what's about to make the synagogue leader mad. Jesus is about to mess up the order of service. He's about to depart from planning center. All the musicians and the team here know exactly what I'm talking about. 
He's going to call an audible. Why? Because he saw her. He calls her over. And he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Y'all remember in the 90s when T.D. Jakes preached this and it got famous and he wrote a book on it and they made a movie out of it? (laughs) Woman, come on, thou art loosed. King James has got some good ones in there, buddy, I, I tell you. Woman, thou art loosed. ESV, not as dynamic. Same, same principle. Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, mark a couple of things. She didn't have to do anything to get his attention. He saw her. She didn't have to parade her need in front of him. He saw her. And he didn't just see her. He called her. She didn't even call out to him. She didn't even say, I've got an unspoken prayer request, which wouldn't have been unspoken because everybody would have seen her need. He saw her and he called her. He called her to come to him with her struggle, with her stoop, with her perhaps pain, with her slow shuffle. And by the way, put yourself in her sandals for a second. Suddenly, she's the focus in the entire synagogue gathering, and most people in her condition would not have liked that, but she didn't let her pride prevent her breakthrough. And when the master calls, and maybe she saw him seeing her, she got up, and she does the best that she can to shuffle into his presence, and every eye is on her, but her eye is on him, and, and he just says this, it's not fanciful, it's not flamboyant, it's not, it's not astounding. He just looks at it, he's talking to her. He's not saying, hey, everybody, watch what I'm about to do. Hey, check this out, get out your phones, here comes something awesome. He looks right at her, but why? Because sometimes he makes it about you. Sometimes it really, really, really pleases Jesus to get your attention, to call you to step into his presence and to listen to what he's going to say to you because he's going to speak something over you at certain moments that are going to free you from the thing that's been crippling you. And so he does it to her and he just says, you're free. He says, you're free. You're free from your disability. We... uh, I think we are probably going to need to humble ourselves in a very specific way as we press into whatever's next. I think one of the ways that all of us, and especially a guy like me in leadership, worship leaders, mentors, disciples, missionaries, maybe even parents in this context, those of us that are exerting intentional influence in the kingdom for the betterment of other people, we, we need to, and especially in the context of gatherings, we need to recognize Jesus may be choosing a season where he works very differently than he has been working. Guys, I want to say this, and this is something we can all work on together. We are addicted to sensationalism. We are addicted to neon. We're addicted to kapow. And listen, I like 
kapow. And sometimes God kapows us. I'm not against it. But if we're not leaving room and margin in our thinking and our preparation and our discernment in the moment for the Lord sometimes just to very softly call an audible and very quickly speak some life-giving word over somebody, we may miss some of the greatest work God wants to do in this season. Because I, I sense this in my spirit. I sense that the Lord and his cultivation of an end times bride, part of that cultivation is he wants her to be a bride that listens because she loves the sound of his voice. And sometimes with all the noise and all the hype and all of the kapow, sometimes we miss the whisper. And it's sometimes in my life anyway, the whisper has held the most transformational moments for me. And so she gets that whisper from Jesus in the synagogue. Now, I'd love to just bless you and we could leave right now and, and we'd, you know, go out feeling ooey-gooey about the Lord and, and that would be awesome. But let me, let me give you this next to last part that he did with her. He didn't just see her and draw her. He, he actually delivers her. This actually happened, okay? Let your Bible speak reality to you. It's not, it's not a metaphor for something else. This actually happened. He laid his hands on her. By the way, total no-no for a rabbi to lay his hands on a female, especially in a religious setting in the synagogue. You don't do that in Jesus' day. That's not something that was common in the culture. Men just didn't connect with women in that kind of way. And Jesus just didn't care. Jesus wasn't interested in saying, before I release my sovereign, healing, delivering power, could you please give me a checklist of the taboo things that you would be upset with me about? You know why he doesn't do that? Because he's in charge. And so he lays his hands on her. I, listen, chances are nobody had touched that woman, woman in forever. She would have been stigmatized in Jesus' day. If a person was afflicted like this, the religious spirit, part of the religious spirit's narrative is, she must ascend. What did she do? And Jesus is very clear, she didn't do anything. The devil did it. He laid his hands on her and immediately, immediately, immediately she was made straight. And I love this. She got her worship on. She glorified God. Oh, now we're starting to migrate towards the leader of the synagogue here, so I'm going to touch this. I, I love this. There's something, I don't even know if it's holy. I'm, I'm somewhere between being feeling affirmed by God in this and somewhere between that, and maybe he's calling me to repent of it. What am I talking about? There's something within me that rejoices when I'm in a setting and somebody gets touched by the Lord and they lose it. And they shout and they worship and they dance, and they weep, or they laugh, they kapow in the moment. I love that, but I especially love it when I think, look around the room. And I look around the room, there's some people like, their countenance reflects that they've recently had a transfusion with a lemon. <laughs> They're actually upset about it. We don't do that around here. She does. Well, why? Because Jesus just touched her. Because Jesus, listen, you and I don't know the backstory 
of that person that may be manifesting joy or brokenness or, or glory. We don't know the backstory. We assign to them our backstory, and maybe our backstory would never want an expression, never demand an expression of, of, of worship like that. Maybe we've got it all together. Maybe we're in full control of our lives. Maybe we have a course that's uninterrupted, unimpeded, and quite frankly, good. And so we don't respond to a touch like that because our brokenness is non-existent. But when a broken person, especially a woman that's been 18 years, broken and broken and broken, every day the sun rose, but she didn't. Every day newness appears. Every day she walks through the market and sees women toting their children, but she can't tote hers if she hasn't. I mean, 18 years, especially in the first century, that could be half a lifetime or a third of a lifetime. And she just went to church one day, and the rabbi that's teaching stops his lesson and says, daughter, come here. And as she comes forward trembling, embarrassed, not knowing what's going on, but feeling compelled not to be able to resist this call of the Lord, she stands before him and goes, you're healed. You're healed. Your disability's gone. And immediately, the Bible says immediately, like she's trying to look up at him and he puts his hand on her and he speaks the words and she straightens up. Now, let me tell you how you don't respond to that. Thank you. Continue your lesson, Rabbi. <laughs> and you were saying she messed up the church service. Why? Because she started worshiping and praying. And that synagogue had never seen anything like that before. Because nobody had gotten a breakthrough. Why? Because the spirit of religion had ruled that synagogue. And we're about to see it. Say, Jeff, that's judgmental. How can you know that? I'm about to show you in the text. And Jesus comes in and he's not asking for permission. He does something radical. And the woman gives a radical response. And everybody is, is undeniably watching what happened. you got to realize, they knew her. They knew her story. They were familiar with her posture, that this was not done in a corner. Indeed, a notable miracle had taken place. And so she is, I just, I don't know, man, I... I just wonder how much, I'm not advocating chaos in our gatherings. I'm not saying, let's see who can outdo one another and, you know, manifesting and all of that. I'm just saying when there's an actual touch from Jesus, you're probably going to respond to it. And especially if you've been praying for it and waiting on it for 18 years and it happens on a day where it wasn't written on your calendar. There was no notification an hour, a minute, uh, an hour ahead of time. And so she's doing all of this, and you'd think the whole place would celebrate, right? Because redeemed people, when we see redeemed people, when they see breakthrough, when they see a healing, when they see a miracle, when they see a salvation, when they see a deliverance, when they see somebody's life transformed, when they see an open display of worship and gratitude and expressions of joy, saved people would be like, ah, this is awesome! Jesus Start the lesson again next week, but can we get in on this right now with her? But that's not what happened in the synagogue. You know why? Because the spirit of religion is in charge. 
I purposely left less time for the spirit of religion because that's not really what I want to talk about. I just want to expose it. And so look, here's the desolate way. Mark this down. And by the way, before you start thinking about how it, how it manifests in other people, check yourself. Check yourself. You say, well, I, I don't have that in me. You probably have a little. It just, you, you probably make sure it's never provoked because you go to settings where you're comfortable and they, don't, they, they do things like you like them done. I'm getting in your business and y'all are acting like, yeah, he must be talking to somebody else. I'm talking to all of us. But interestingly, at this point, it came from an appointed leader. That's where I, I, I get nervous when I read passages like this. It says, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. That's a powerfully intense Greek word that it means. He was extremely grieved. Like he wasn't like, oh man, we had a plan today. That lesson was pretty good. I don't really like this guy named Jesus because he doesn't sign off on all the stuff I sign off of, but it was going all right. I wish he hadn't done that. That's not what he, it, the guy wasn't annoyed. The, the Bible indicates he was extremely grieved. And remember what he was grieved at. A woman got healed. And a woman is worshiping. And his response as the leader of the house, the leader of the synagogue, was he was not happy. He was angry. But like religiously spirited people do, he's also, or like religiously spirited people are, people that are fully given to it, he's not only upset, he's a coward. Because if he's upset, what should he have done? He should have gone to Jesus. He doesn't. Because religiously spirited people are hyper passive aggressive. And they will always get their point across without quite putting themselves out there to take any shrapnel that might come back on them. So look at what he does. He doesn't say anything to Jesus. By the way, it, just very quickly, why did he get upset? It's not that he was against healing per se. You just don't do healings on the Sabbath. It says he was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was massive in the thinking, the cultural life, and the theology of the Jews of Jesus' day. It still is among Jews. The Sabbath is, you, you just don't violate the Sabbath. To the extent where the Sabbath was so exalted in the spirit of religion in this man that he had lost his discernment, that literally his policy undermined his purpose. His policy was keep the Sabbath. But his purpose should have been, as a leader in the synagogue, manifest the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to whomever you can. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a miracle-working, healing God. But not in the religious-spirited man's life. And so he gets mad, not because she got healed. I mean, that would be unspiritual. But because she got healed on the wrong day. So, look at his, so he takes over the sermon, and he says to the people, notice he didn't say anything to Jesus. He immediately starts to regain his spiritual control over the people, because Jesus had just set one of them free, and he wasn't about to want that to happen to anybody else in that congregation. And so he says to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. Could you think of anything more stupid? 
Forgive me if you have little kids in here. Somebody once told me, don't say stupid in the pulpit. It's stupid. He says, I mean, think about just how ludicrous it is. The, the bent over lady is rejoicing and giving God the glory and pretty much everybody's willing to be happy, but what have they been trained to do? Look to the spiritual leader of the synagogue. And he's not happy, so they can't, get, they can't connect their joy to her joy because he's, he's actually mitigating the miracle. And he's saying, hey, come Monday morning for your healing. Come Sunday morning for your healing. Sabbath would have been Saturday. Come, come Tuesday. But we don't heal on the Sabbath. I, would, I know. I would have had to repent, but if I was in the back room, I would say, hey, dude, you don't ever heal. I've been here 18 years. She's been snooped every Sabbath. been coming there 18 years probably with zero help and no results and this ruler's desolate way was that he had he had bible i mean you got to keep the sabbath it's part of the law that was what they believed but he's mishandling the scripture to manipulate these people for his personal agenda and the result of it is, is a woman who just got her breakthrough probably feels bad about it. And the people missed an opportunity to glorify, uh, to, to, to praise. And, and Jesus, he's, he's bringing the glory of heaven into that room. And it's being thought by the spirit of religion. So let me give you this and, and we'll get done here. This is what I want us to do. I want us to employ discerning wisdom about this because this is, this is me potentially, this is you potentially. We have to be able to see our collective selves in this, in this, in this season, in this age. Hear me on this, especially those of you that came from where I came from in the kingdom. The expression of Christianity moving forward is not going to look the same. It's not. It's not going to be relegated to a Sunday. I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but I do want to speak the truth. I literally believe with all my heart, I don't know when, that, that what we're doing right now, meeting together in what our culture would call religious freedom or religious liberty, I, I believe it will be gone one day in America. I believe that. And so we have to repent of the idea that we are right with God because we showed up in a building for two hours on a certain day, sang some songs, gave some money, and heard somebody talk. And we have to start recognizing that for the glory of God to, to be released in our culture, it's going to be a lot bigger than our previous understanding of how Christianity is advanced or even experienced. And so I want my heart to start yielding now. I want to start surrendering my religious expectations the way I've always done it, the, the way I want, the way I'm comfortable with. And I, I just want to call on you to do the same. And 
to crucify the little Pharisee that's running around all of our hearts from time to time wanting to be validated. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to show you how Jesus did it. He, he's the one with discerning wisdom in that house that day, 2,000 years ago. And so what does he do? He does what we don't like to do. The Lord actually exposes the man. He's the leader, and the Lord exposes him. Then the Lord answered him. Remember, the guy never said a word to Jesus. The guy is telling all the people that he's had control over, and I believe he thinks he's doing the right thing, by the way. I don't think he's evil. I just think he's so completely blind. And so he, he, the Lord, he, the guy addresses the people, but the Lord, the Lord addresses the, the leader and those that are with him. He says, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Hypocritei, Greek word, hypocritei, hypocrite. You know what it meant in Jesus' day? It was a word that was used to describe an actor in theater. And in those days, an actor or an actress would often play multiple parts. And so they would have in their hands a mask in each hand. When they're playing this part, they put this mask up and recite that dialogue. When in that same scene, they play another part, they put this mask up. And that person was known as Hippocrates, a hypocrite. Why? Because they wear a mask depending on what situation they're in. And Jesus pulls that word out of the culture and says, that's you. He says, hey, can you put your mask down for a minute? Don't you do the same thing on the Sabbath when your donkey needs some water? Don't you give your donkey relief? Don't you give your ox relief even on the Sabbath? Don't you allow for that? And so Jesus exposes the man for being inconsistent in his religious spirit. Above all things, I believe that the religious spirit, above all things, is just inconsistent. Because once you start living by religious dictates that somebody makes up and they're not found in the Bible, it's an endless list. Everybody gets to write their own rules. And so what he's saying here is he's like, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. You don't even obey what you're now trying to enforce on this house. And so verse number 16, he says, and and so he compares it. He he magnifies mercy above law-keeping. He says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan, there you have it, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He's like, don't you get it? Yes, I know. I messed up the synagogue service for today. Sir, I know you can put your mask down. Put it down. No, put it down, sir. I know that I didn't do things the way that you wanted them done today. But sir, your own legalistic way, you don't even obey it because I saw you watering your donkey and your oxen last Sabbath. And how much more this human being, this woman, man, there is, y'all be glad I'm out of time because for all you that want to hug trees and save the dolphins and do, I'm, I'm not against trees or dolphins, but I'm saying, Human life, human life, human life. Jesus says, water your donkey, water your ox. But this is a daughter of Abraham. 
and she's been in that Jesus saw what nobody else saw. She's been in the power and grip of Satan's demons for almost 20 years. And sir, you're upset that I set her free today because I didn't do it on the day that you would have done it. But by the way, sir, you couldn't do it because religion doesn't deliver anybody. Worship team, y'all come on up, please. So verse 17 really just is a mirror that we we look into as we we finish. Because the Lord divides the people. He didn't intentionally do it, but what he did divided the people. It says all of his adversaries were put to shame. Literally, it, it indicates they were thoroughly deeply embarrassed. He offended them. Who? The synagogue leader and those who were with him. By the way, he did it a couple chapters earlier. He's going to do it in the next chapter. Jesus keeps saying, I know it's the Sabbath day, but you guys don't understand the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was um, crucial for them to the extent that they, they didn't want God to do what God wanted to do on the Sabbath. That's where their religion had taken them. Sometimes a really good biblical principle, when we don't keep it in context and we don't keep it in, 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 in central in the person of Jesus, even a good biblical discipline, a good biblical idea, if we don't manage and steward it rightly, it actually becomes a stumbling block. And it hinders the work of God. I know God is sovereign, but I'm going to tell you, I'm preaching that this Wednesday. This Wednesday night, this week, I'm going to preach a message about the sovereign son of God looking at an entire village and saying, I can't really do anything here. Why? Because of the spirit of offense. So he puts that group, that people in that group, and then I like the other part. And so we get to end on a happy moment. But it says, all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were were being done by him. There was a group of people in there that were really mad because of how the day went. Because it wasn't done the way that that they wanted it to be done. Then there was another group of people that, let's just say, Johanna. I don't know what her name was, but Johanna's walking out. She's doing this. She's like, oh. Awesome. Tears flowing down her face. Stopping at every, I I would have just wanted to follow her home just to watch her celebrate the Messiah. And there were people there that day that said, church got messed up today. We didn't even get to finish the sermon. But man, we've never seen the power of God like that. And those people said, I want more of him. I want to know who he is. And I've got my own bent that I need his hand on. As you stand to your feet, please do if you're physically able. She was bent in her body. She was stooped in her spine. He was stooped in his soul. And what's funny, Jesus healed her because she humbly came to him when he called. 
But Jesus did not heal that man that day. Why? Because the man wasn't interested. In this house today, I believe we have both needs represented. There's some of you that need, you need your breakthrough, and you know where you're stooped, and you know where you're bent, and you know how long it's been, and you know how many times you've come. But you showed up again today. I'm going to tell you, keep contending, because the enemy told you all week to stop contending. The culture tells you that it's going to go a different way than what Jesus has said it's going to go. You're viewing the kingdom through the lens of the messed up American culture. Stop that. Stop it. It's beneath you. Bring your depression today. Bring your dread. Bring your broken body. Bring your broken marriage. You bring it to him. You're not bringing it to me or Billy or Dustin or Hazen or anybody. You're bringing it to him. You're stepping forward and saying, I'm going to answer the non-audible call, but I hear it in my heart. I'm coming today. And for some of us, drop your mask. Drop it. Charismatic, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Reformed, Arminian, Let's drop the masks and let Jesus just stare into our face and ask him to deliver us from every single trace of the spirit of religion. If you don't think you have any, you have more than you know. I don't say that as an accusation. I'm just saying it's there. Ask him to deal with it before it gets provoked. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that the Holy Spirit would move in this room And I ask that conviction would fall on each of us wherever it's needed so that we can be healed. I ask for those that are troubled in mind and body, marriage and circumstances. Let them act in courage and just come and press in. And Jesus, touch whatever they release to you. Touch it and bring healing. Work in your people today, Lord. We need you. Deliver us from the spirit of religion in the church and the Bible Belt. Deliver me from it, every trace of it. And God, work in this house so that we can be those who celebrate when somebody gets set free. In Jesus' name, amen.